Hello, and welcome to PwC's Next in Health podcast. I'm Ben Isker, leader of PwC's Health Research Institute, and today we have Trina Tadaros with us, who leads our regulatory center. Hi, Trina. Hey, Ben. Great to be here. I'm glad you could join us again, and we've got a good smorgasbord of things to cover today, both from the the vaccine front, but also some policy issues that are going to relate to those. So I think the goal today is let's dive into a couple of areas that people may not be hearing about kind of from the, the regular press and media, and maybe we could shed some light on some of those issues. So one of those is for a long time, you've been giving us some historical comparisons to what the COVID pandemic is like vis-a-vis past pandemics. And um, I was wondering if you could provide some insights around the H1N1 and some parallels to what we're seeing now. Yeah, yeah. So I think one of the concerns for many months was whether there would be enough demand for the vaccine once We had them available, and there were a lot of surveys done showing great percentages of the population in the United States hesitant to get the vaccine, wanting to wait. And I thought back to 2009 when the H1N1 vaccine came out, and this was a pandemic of much lesser proportions, and there were huge lines, a huge scramble for the vaccine then. And I'm looking right now at a photo from the media back then, and there's a huge line of people waiting, waiting, waiting for the vaccine, the H1N1 vaccine. And I wondered at that time when I was thinking back about that, whether we would see the same when we got the COVID-19 vaccine, whether there would actually be a scramble and a lot of that hesitancy would sort of melt away. And sure enough, uh, I think we are hearing more and more about the scramble for the vaccine. And there are even photos very similar to 2009 of long lines of people waiting to get the vaccine in various parts of the country where you can line up. I'm looking at one from California that looks a lot like the 2009 photo I was looking at from California from H1N1. And so what we're seeing right now is demand outstripping supply, at least supply that's available. We have a lot of vaccine available. We don't have Um, We're not giving it out as quickly as people would like. And so I think this is just sort of the story of sometimes a little cautionary tale about what we might think is going to happen in the future, not necessarily coming to pass. A lot of that hesitancy has melted away. I will say there are still a lot of folks that are cautious about getting the vaccine. There are reports of healthcare workers turning down the vaccine in pretty large numbers in some places. So we kind of have this lopsided thing where we have a good number of folks who still are skeptical, still want to wait, but then a huge demand for it right now and and a scramble. Well, so much of healthcare often comes down to supply demand. And I love that you use that phrase talking about the, the vaccine issue. But we could also use that phrase and that concept thinking about ICUs and what's happening during the pandemic. Read us into that. Yeah, yeah. This is an interesting observation that Brown University's Dr. Ashish Jha put on Twitter. So this is just an observation, but I think it's something that we should be watching. 
What Dr. Jaw said is that he's been watching the number of ICU beds available in the U.S. and in various states, the number of those beds taken up by folks with COVID-19, and the number of those beds taken by non-COVID ICU patients, so people who don't have COVID but need those beds for something else, some other reason. And what he's noticed, and I think it's just worth watching and that we don't really know what this means is that we have had an increase in the number of ICU beds over time. So if you look at October 2nd, according to his numbers, we had in the United States 78,000 ICU beds total. On January 1st, we had 86,000. So we increased the number because of the surge of the pandemic. We had in October 8,000 COVID patients in those beds. In January, we had 27,000 COVID patients. But then here's the interesting observation. In October, we had 48,000 non-COVID ICU patients, and on January 1st, we had 39,000 fewer, fewer patients with non-COVID in ICU beds. And so the question is, what's going on? Clearly, people need ICU beds who don't have COVID. We don't think there's been a sudden decrease in the number of people having serious health problems that aren't COVID. And so the question is, what is happening to those patients? Are people who might have been in the ICU previously being put in less intense care um, now because we just have such a crunch? Or are we seeing fewer people going into the ICUs because non-emergent procedures and services aren't happening in as great numbers? And so you don't have as many people going from those procedures to the ICU? We really don't know, but it is a concerning question. And one thing that Dr. Ajisha said is that eventually we will be able to tease out whether we have an increase in non-COVID deaths as well from people not getting the intensity of care that they needed during this period. So I think it's worth watching, but it is concerning. And eventually we will kind of be able to tease this out and it will help probably set policy going forward for the next pandemic. You know, hopefully that won't be for another hundred years, but uh, but you never know. Well, lots of storylines going on simultaneous. And let's turn our attention now to the vaccine rollout itself. And I, and I know that there's a lot of general information out there about the vaccine rollout, but just to, at a kind of a high level, where are we right now? Yeah, yeah. The vaccine rollout, I think, is it follows the pattern so far that the rest of the pandemic response has followed, which is a patchwork. So very different state to state to state. I think there is a lot of frustration out there. The percentage of Americans who have received both doses of the two that are necessary for both of the vaccines that have emergency use authorizations is quite small. So we are sort of moving along slower than we would like. I think one big question that many of us have is who is really getting vaccinated right now? So what's the demographic information around those who have been vaccinated, the ages, the racial and gender breakdowns? And the important thing to know, I think, right now is that we just don't know. The federal government is not publishing that information right now. And so we cannot really say who's been vaccinated yet, except for sort of these big, broad numbers. Some states are collecting and releasing that information, that demographic information, but the number of states is quite small, just over a dozen, and they are not doing it in a standard way. So there's no real way to sort of say anything general, and there's no way to compare state to state very well because those 
data are not standardized state to state. So what we really need is national data collected by the federal government and then broken down for us. And we're still waiting for that. So I think that's one big question mark is we really do want to know who's been vaccinated, who still needs to be vaccinated. And we hope that the disparities that we've seen throughout the pandemic in terms of racial breakdowns for deaths, hospitalizations and cases does not show up in the vaccination situation as well. But as of now, we really just don't know. Well, let's continue the conversation around resources. So I think that's a great update on where we are on vaccination so far. And there and there's definitely some frustration there. But really, it's all about where do we go from here? And it's about resources. And, and President-elect Biden has a $1.9 trillion stimulus proposal. At the time our listeners will be listening to this, he will be President Biden you know, what it means for providers and others who are doing this work. You know, a personal story this weekend, I had to get a family member tested, went to our local children's hospital. They had set up a testing center out in the parking lot. They had extra staff. They had equipment out there, a trailer for the clinicians to rest in. You know, in Texas, we get pretty inclement weather. So they had a lot of things to help protect people for the weather. There's a lot of cost involved with the pandemic and treating people and testing people and getting vaccines and arms. What can we expect from the stimulus proposal that might be bringing resources for many of the things I just mentioned? So the president-elect, when he proposed this, he was president-elect, Joe Biden put forward a $1.9 trillion stimulus proposal. And so we will see how much of this actually makes it into to legislation that will be passed by the House and the Senate, if it is passed, anything is passed by the House and the Senate, nothing is for sure. But there is a lot around the pandemic. The proposal envisions a national vaccination program with 20 billion, sort of funded by $20 billion in federal money, including expanding the federal match for Medicaid to 100% for administration of vaccines. There's money for scaling up testing, including rapid testing, which is something that a lot of public health folks have been talking about, that what we really need is a huge increase in testing, in particular rapid testing. So there's money for that. There is money for 100,000 additional public health workers, which is meant to help the situation that many states are feeling where they are, you know, have a dearth of workers to do the work that is needed for the pandemic. There's federal subsidization of COBRA through September, an expansion in the value of the ACA premium tax credit, more money for behavioral health, veterans health. There's money to address health disparities. There is funding for states to address the situation in long-term care centers and other congregate settings, which has been sort of, I would say, one of the big hotspots for the United States for, in particular, deaths has been long-term care centers. So money to help protect folks there. There is money for a national virus genetic surveillance program to track variants. That's something that the UK set up and why the UK has been ahead of almost the entire world in terms of very quickly identifying variations in the virus and then being able to pick up which ones matter and which ones don't, or at least which ones we should be paying attention to and which ones appear to be just sort of run of the mill, we can expect variants to happen kind of variants. 
And then there is also money for PPE, which is dogged providers from the beginning. And so there's $30 billion into a disaster relief fund to ensure that there's sufficient supplies and protective gear, and also federal reimbursement for critical emergency response resources for states, including the deployment of the National Guard, which we've seen some states do to help with all kinds of things in the pandemic. The proposal also envisions using the Defense Production Act for further creation of PPE. And so that is a federal law that allows the government to enlist uh, private business to do things for the country that in an emergency situation, in this case, it would be to create more PPE, which is something that, again, has been hard to find for some providers. So this is sort of some of the money that is envisioned for the pandemic in the stimulus proposal. And we'll see these proposals. They look very differently no matter what, once they get back to the president's desk to be signed as legislation. So this is a wish list. You could look at it as a wish list more than anything else. Well, thank you for that breakdown on the proposals. And of course, we'll be seeing over the next weeks or so if this moves forward in the new Congress. Let's end today, though, with maybe just a little a little ray of hope or at least cautiously optimistic about some of the things we're learning around more longer term effects. A recent study that you have polled has shown some data around that. Could you tell us about it? One of the big questions over the pandemic has been, what's going on with kids, right? So there's been sort of a swinging back and forth. Children don't get sick as often. Some kids get extremely sick. How infectious are children? Should we be worried about them? Maybe they're asymptomatic carriers. There's been lots and lots of questions about children because the way that the infection and the virus behaves with them, it appears to be somewhat different than adults. So one of the more worrisome signals that came out a few months ago was the question of whether student athletes or students who become infected with SARS-CoV-2 might have heart damage, myocarditis in particular, associated with the infection and that they might not even know it, right? So they might have gotten infected, no symptoms, very mild symptoms, but then there's sort of a quiet damage being done to their hearts. And so here we have a, I would say, a somewhat comforting counter signal to that. And that is a study that just came out in JAMA cardiology, where the researchers looked at 145 student athletes with COVID-19 who had mild to moderate symptoms or no symptoms during the acute infection. And what these researchers did is they gave all of those athletes a cardiac MRI, and then they looked at what happened. And what they found, and this is, I think, comforting, is that of those 145 student athletes, at a median of 15 days after a positive test for COVID-19, only two had any signals of myocarditis. And so 1.4% of the 145 student athletes who had COVID-19. And so that's pretty low. That's a, that's a rare complication that they found. And so I think that is a counter signal to some of the thoughts earlier that a lot of students might have a very mild case, but actually something much more serious is happening quietly inside of them. So I think a little bit of comforting news, not completely comforting. They didn't find it in zero of the 145 student athletes athletes, but 1.4%, meaning, you know, 98.5% were just fined in, in this realm. 
Well, Trina, these days, there's nothing wrong with ending with just a little bit of comforting news. So thank you once again for joining us and and providing all that great information on what's happening with the stimulus and vaccines and some of the other research reports that you pulled. Thanks for having me. Well, as I've mentioned before, there's a lot of other information that we provide on policy issues and trends around the healthcare industry, which is useful for healthcare leaders as well as consumers who want to just dig a little bit deeper. And you can do that at pwc.com forward slash HRI. And for this week, you've been with Next in Health. This podcast is brought to you by PwC All Rights Reserved. PwC refers to the U.S. member firm or one of its subsidiaries or affiliates and may sometimes refer to the PwC network. Each member firm is a separate legal entity. Please see www.pwc.com structure for further details. This podcast is for general information purposes only and should not be used as a substitute for consultation with professional advisors.